0: Let's get back into 1 Peter. One of the more intriguing studies for me is to study the life of the writers of the book as I go through the book and think back through their own lives like Peter because he wrote the book we're in, in 1 Peter. As we make our way through this book, reflecting on Peter's life during the three years that are recorded in the gospel accounts will help us to understand Uh, his perspective as he writes. It's very interesting. Turn over to Matthew chapter 26. We just read, uh, as Wendell read your passage, keep that in mind as we now read this passage in Matthew 26. Remember, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your heart sanctify Christ as Lord, always being ready to give a defense of the hope that lies within you. Okay, that's in your back of your mind. That's Peter writing. Look at this. While he was still speaking, Judas came, and one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs, from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. They came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. So Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. That was Peter. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and He will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the Scripture be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour Jesus said to the crowd, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this had taken place that the scripture of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. And Peter was one of them. Isn't it intriguing? Have you ever been accused of hypocrisy before? Peter obviously failed this opportunity to glorify God, didn't he? At that point, he did, when faced with persecution. However, by the time Peter writes his epistle, he has dramatically changed, hasn't he? In fact, we see a little bit of the change over in Acts chapter 5. Look over there, in Acts chapter 5. The Jews are now very angry at Peter and John and the disciples. Verse 26 of chapter 5 in Acts states, Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Now, just to give a little bit of context, remember they had arrested them, and then the angel had come, and they had been freed, and now they come and capture John and Peter, again, verse 27, "...and when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us." But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed... "...by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him." Then in verse 33, "...when they had heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them." So now Peter's in the line of fire again, right? Right? We know that uh, a man steps in and advocates for them. Look down at verse 39, though. So they took his advice, the guy that had advocated for Peter and John. Verse 40, And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Verse 41, Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple, from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. What a profound change, isn't it? Peter goes from running or pulling out a sword and wanting to do it the hard way, right? Wanting to take out the enemy, to now... Taking a beating and rejoicing that they're counted worthy by God to suffer shame for the name of Jesus. Peter understood God's sovereignty by this time, didn't he? He understood God's sovereignty over suffering. He understood God's sovereignty over persecution. He understood that the Lord used suffering to reveal His glory to the world. What was different? Peter saw the cross. Peter saw the resurrection. Peter understood the gospel. The Holy Spirit had illumined his eyes to understand that suffering is the means by which God has glorified himself to the world. So when Peter writes, 1 Peter, he writes not only knowing the truth, not only recognizing that he is vulnerable still, and that the people are vulnerable still, to failing to stand up to these opportunities, he writes with an understanding of the gospel. And this gospel is what drives him to proclaim truths that seem to be shocking to us at first, but now are what they're all about. This is what our lives are about. As I preach today, I can say I've never been beaten for the faith. Anybody in here? Been beaten for the faith? I don't think so. And no matter what difficulty I face, however, the Word says the truth is, this is the truth. This is how we're supposed to respond. Suffering for righteousness' sake is always an opportunity to proclaim the gospel by what we say and what we do. I was talking to Shane a little bit about this just before we started. I have to admit I'm I've been confronted and convicted by something dramatically this just this morning even as I'm preaching on this. We are oh we're so spoiled in our country. I'm so spoiled. I'm spoiled. I'm always you know, if I want if I want a little bit of ice cream, I I go to the kitchen and get some ice cream. You understand, if I'm I'm walking down the street and it's a little bit hot, I'm like, ooh, I'm going to get in some air conditioning. I don't like to sweat. Or whatever the circumstances are, if our house is just a little bit warm, you know, up around 79 or 80, <gasps> go turn the air down. It's too hot in here. There's something about us we can't put up with even a little bit of pain. I don't know if we can even handle applying these messages because we're so pleasure-seeking people. We feed our flesh way too much, don't we? So when anything tough comes along in our life, we crack We curl up in a ball and say, Oh, I can't handle this. Beloved, oh, hear me. I don't know if we can really even come close to grasping the depth of these passages. We are spoiled people. I think all of us need to practice sacrifice more. Saying no to our flesh is probably a good thing we should do. What do you think? getting us ready a little bit for maybe some harder things in life. We have, oh, so much. And yet sometimes I think it is like a bitter drug that the enemy is putting into our system, lulling us to sleep and keeping us from being ready for when a real opportunity arises. Suffering for righteousness' sake is always an opportunity to proclaim the gospel by what we say and what we do. Remember, Peter wrapped up this section in verse 12. Look in your Bibles, 312. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. God sees everyone who has repented and believed in Him. God is fully aware of our direction and our desire to obey Him. God is listening to our prayers intently, even those who are being persecuted. On the other hand, God's just wrath is against the unrepentant. Do you understand that the unbelieving world right now is under abiding under the wrath of God and His wrath is already being displayed as He turns them over to their wicked sins? You know, going into sin is not fun. It's actually agonizing, depressing, discouraging, sad going that way. That is His judgment. He's letting them go. But on top of that, they will face, face a just judge one day. God is opposed to the proud, the unbelieving world. He's opposed to it. We saw last time that our passage describes Witnessing through submission even when it includes suffering. Peter explains that believers to these believers how suffering for righteousness' sake should look lived out in their lives. And the sections are verses 13 to 17 are witness through suffering for righteousness' sake. And in 18 to 22, Christ's witness through suffering for righteousness' sake. This passage deals with how the true believer should view suffering for righteousness' sake. Ultimately, we must see it as an opportunity, a privilege to glorify God no matter what happens in our lives. We saw first that there were three features of suffering for righteousness' sake. Suffering for righteousness' sake is not expected. That is, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness. Peter implies what? That it's not a guarantee that suffering doesn't happen all the time. But if it does happen, understand it's an opportunity. Second, we saw suffering for righteousness' sake is favor from God. But even if you should suffer for sake, for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. You are favored by God if you are persecuted for the name. You are favored by God. Now that goes contrary to the way we think, Right? Especially in a society and a culture and a way of thinking that says, God is here to bless me with pleasures and making my life easy. Isn't my life supposed to be easy? Isn't that the blessing of God? Not necessarily. The blessing of God is seen in suffering for righteousness' sake, persecution, and all kinds of suffering. The favor of God is on us if we are suffering for righteousness' sake. I know that this section is suffering persecution, but the truth applies to all kinds of suffering, beloved. We had an opportunity to visit Johnny Erickson Tata's ministry in California this past week. I I have to admit... there were a couple of things that we got to do. That was my highlight (laughs) by far. That was greater than walking across stage, getting my degree and shaking John MacArthur's hand. I'm honest, just meeting the woman was, wow. I felt like I was in the presence of an apostle Paul-like figure. No, she's not an apostle. But you understand the gist. When you see somebody God has used in suffering to bring so much glory to himself. Oh, it's so amazing. She has uh, impacted people all around the world, given wheelchairs to people that didn't even, weren't able to get around in their communities. People crawling around in third world countries. They bring wheelchairs to them and help them get around be able to get jobs. And one of the lines that just kept coming up over and over and over the whole day was, God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Oh, the implications of that phrase is amazing. What does he hate? Well, he hates seeing people suffer. He does. He hates that... This woman has had breast cancer, is a quadriplegic, she has ongoing agonizing pain. She's been through miserable things in her life. He he sees that pain, he sees that suffering, and he hates it. But he allows that pain to happen in people's lives in order to produce what he loves. And what he loves is this, first and foremost, his glory, (laughs) His glory. Oh, when I see this woman and what she's gone through and her response to it, I say, God is great. He's amazing. And he also produces in the person that goes through the suffering, Christ-likeness. It was... Again, it was as she rounded the corner, we weren't even supposed to necessarily see her. She just happened to run around the corner and it was like there she is, Bren. I said, "Guys, look, there she is." <laughs> and she immediately turned her wheelchair and went towards us. And she had that glow, that smile. That joy of the Lord. That just made me want to sit there and cry. Oh, beloved. I don't want a doctorate. I want to look like that woman. I don't want to be John MacArthur. I just want to exalt Christ in my suffering and in my life. When we suffer for righteousness sake, God sees it. He hates it. However, God is still in control and He's producing amazing things through it. To be used by God to show Him off to a lost and dying world is a great blessing, isn't it? I'll take it. Anybody else want to sign up for that? I want it. I want it. I want to glorify Him. Because that's what it's about. Our lives are about Him, not about us. The greatest defense of God's glory is revealed in how His followers respond to suffering. Lastly, we began to examine suffering for righteousness' sake as favor from God and suffering for righteousness' sake must be dealt with properly. We started to unfold these, and I had five ways last time. Now I've moved it up to six. Six ways disciples of Jesus deal properly with suffering for righteousness' sake. You see it in these verses. We started with, we must not fear persecution, and do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. Peter got this, didn't he? He understood it. He applied it. He kept going. He kept proclaiming. He kept exalting Christ despite his circumstances. He applied that Old Testament passage. And we must sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts. But in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord. Or like the Dazby says, probably better, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Set Christ apart in your hearts as Lord. This essentially means to acknowledge Jesus' lordship over everyone and everything that's happening in your life. He is sovereign over every mistreatment, every bad word, everything that happens in your life. He is sovereign. We say it. Do we believe it? Do we trust Him when the bad things happen in our lives? Even the small ones when our child disrespects us. Or our spouse says something unkind to us. Or a boss doesn't give us recognition that we think we should get or our neighbor parks in our yard instead of their own. <laughs> Look, beloved, this attitude of submission and surrender to the sovereignty of God is an ongoing process. We don't get it right away. And even when we get it, we have to continue to preach it to our hearts, don't we? All the time. It applies to every situation you face. No, we may not face a beating for our faith, but we will always face people who don't like us and don't like what we do. Friends, if our desire for the people's approval is our greatest desire, then our fear of their disapproval will stifle our testimony before God. If you are afraid of what people think of you, or you desire for people to appraise you, You are set up for a fall. You cannot handle any kind of difficulty that comes into your life. Sanctifying Christ as Lord means His Lordship abolishes all fear of man. We no longer care what other people think of us. Now listen, that does not mean that we don't want to help people and we're not compassionate towards people. That doesn't mean that we elevate ourselves above others. That's not what it means. But what it means is is that God's sovereign over every missed word said to us. Every unkind thing said to us. God ordained every bad word said to you this past week. Every unkind thing said to you. If we can't handle the little words said bad to us, How are we going to be able to be hung up on posts and doused with oil and burned alive? Oh, beloved, understand this. God is sovereign over people being used as torches. or Having their heads cut off for Christ's name. We need to think different, don't we? But I want my pleasure. (sighs) We're not ready. If we can't drive past a McDonald's and say no to a milkshake, how in the world are we going to get our heads cut off for Jesus? You can quote me on that one. We must be ready to share the gospel. Notice uh, always being ready to make a defense of everyone who asks you to give account for the hope that is in you. The context is suffering for doing what is right. Suffering at the hands of persecutors. In these circumstances, we, we must be ready to share hope to the persecutor. When we accept mistreatment by trusting in the sovereign reign of Christ, people will notice our dependence and peace in the midst of fire. This is when people begin to arise and ask questions and their hearts begin to be pricked. And they begin to think, am I hurting an innocent person? Why is this person responding with kindness to my mistreatment? I'm so thankful for the last couple of weeks I've had somebody that y'all, most of you don't know. And don't worry, don't try to figure out who it is. But he's texting me. He lives a ways away. He's been giving me a hard time through text. He's kept me humble for two or three weeks now just blasting me with foul language and being real mean to me. Rough, harsh stuff over and over. I get probably 10 to 20 texts a day. Harsh words. I'm like, yes! Keep them coming. Keep them coming! And I'm thinking to myself, wait, wait, wait. Because every once in a while I say, that one hurt. I'm going to retaliate! <laughs> Watch me blast you with my texting thumbs. And right before I push send, I go, whoa, whoa, stop, back away! And I say, I'm praying for you. I love you. I hurt for you. Do you need anything from me? Again, this is just absolute grace because this is not my natural reaction. It's not, guys, it's not. It's not what I want to do. My flesh wants to go the opposite, doesn't it? Doesn't yours? How many of you wish more people would ask you, who is Jesus and why do you love Him so much? How many of you want that question? I want that question, don't you? Well, until the suffering comes. That is the crucible for God to then bring that about. Do you understand what I am just said? That often the very difficulties that you're facing are the very things that God's setting up for people to then turn around and ask, why are you doing this? Why do you ask this way? We're all looking for open doors for the gospel. But the thing that opens many of the doors are the things we run from, like suffering. Isn't that true? We want the easy ride. How many of you want the easy ride? We want the easy ride, which means you're never able to give the true gospel. Or if you do, it's all, well, look at them. Look at Jesus. Look at the Apostle Paul. Look at all these people that have died for the faith. But don't look at me because my life's been easy. (laughs) I got it easy here. Beloved, you want open doors for the gospel? Maybe it means sufferings on the, around the corner. If we're reverencing Christ as Lord, you will see even suffering as wide open doors and opportunities for the gospel. God gives divine opportunities to believers to proclaim Him and exalt Him during suffering for righteousness sake. Friends, we need to view our mistreatment this way opportunities. Next time somebody says something rude to you, say it. Opportunity. Everybody together. Opportunity. Do you believe it? Good. We must not fear nor cower, but trust the Lord. To share our hope with others, it must be a present hope, a confident expectation. We must abide in this hope all the time. The hope that was mentioned in verse Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is our hope, isn't it? Our hope is in this inheritance to come that's imperishable, undefiled, and will not be, fade away. These are the things that our confidence is in. This is where our hope is. And so when our attention and our focus is on this eschatological thinking, guess what? We're ready. And they say, why do you live as if the world really doesn't matter? And you say, because it doesn't. Because heaven is my home, Christ is my Lord, and He's returning one day. Believe in Him. He's your hope. Brothers and sisters... This heavenly thinking is crucial for our readiness. We must be eternally focused, not temporally focused. I know it's easy for Pastor Mike to say when he has a wife and five kids. What about me who's single and don't have a spouse? What about me? Again, all these things, everything. Our hope is not in this world. Our hope is in Christ. No matter where you are or in what position you are in this world, you're going to be tempted to not be satisfied with what you have. I don't care if you're single, married, have lots of kids, no kids. I mean, you're there. You're going to be tempted because the world is going to lie to you. And if your confident expectation is in the things of this world, then guess what? You're going to fail whenever suffering comes. And nobody's going to ask you, where's your hope? Because you're going to be miserable. We are prepared to give a defense of our hope because our hope is not just a glimmer in our heart, it is a floodlight to our soul. That points us to hope in the future. This is how we respond to suffering. Now Peter gives a description of how this defense looks coming out of our mouths when we are being persecuted. We must share the gospel with a proper attitude towards our opponents, but, but with gentleness and reverence. Again, this doesn't look like Peter Back in Matthew, does it? With gentleness and reverence. No, not much gentleness and reverence then. What happened? The gospel happened. Notice it's a contrast, but... A strong contrast. Though we are ready, we have a defense, we're ready to give it, we have lots of hope, we're confident, but... Strong contrast with gentleness and reverence. Often a lack of fear is presented in this world as proud confidence. I'll take you or I'll die trying. But for a true believer, we don't fear, but we humbly depend upon the Lord and we express our hope in the Lord with gentleness and honor to those who are mistreating us. How many of you honor those that oppose you? That one doesn't come natural, does it? This is opposite from the world thinking. There's a mindset that says, show others that you're better than the one mistreating you, even if you can't beat them physically. Belittle them with your words. But Scripture says, humbly exalt Christ, not yourself, and honor those who oppose you, and be gentle with them. The word gentleness here literally means humility, courtesy, consideration, gentleness. We live in a society that can't open a door for a woman anymore, much less show any compassion or gentleness to anybody. Again, I find this so intriguing that these were written by Peter. (laughs) Isn't it shocking? A man that would cut off a slave's ear to try to control the circumstance is now talking about speaking with gentleness and reverence. The same guy that cut off Malchus's ear has changed. The gospel has changed them. It's transformed Peter. Peter was previously ready for a fight, always. Whereas now, he's saying gentleness and reverence to even your opponent. He's calling for gentleness for all those that will face opposition. So is there ever a time for harsh confrontation? (laughs) Yes, but I would argue that there are many more calls for gentleness and reverence than there are confrontation. Now again, if you notice, even when Peter talked about, talked to the high priest in Acts chapter 5, did he tell the truth? Yeah, you were the one that hung him up on the tree. So he confronts them. But how he did it, we can't, we can't, when we read through Acts, we can't always get the tenor of how he said it. I could read it this way. You are the one who hung him up on a tree. Or it could have been, you were the one that hung him up on a tree. Which one's right? Well, here's how we know. What he says in 1 Peter. That's how we know. He spoke with gentleness and reverence because the Spirit of God was working in him. He understood the gospel. He saw Jesus. Acts, or 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 to 25. He saw how he responded when mistreated. Look at this. Look at these verses, guys. Galatians 6 1. Write these down. You need to read them later. 6 1. Brethren, if you even if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual. Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one look into yourself so that you will not be tempted. How about this one? Ephesians 4, 1 to 3. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. How about this one? Philippians 4, 5. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. How about First Timothy six eleven? But flee from these things. Talking about the love of money. For you, man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Second Timothy two twenty four. This is dealing with false teachers. The Lord's bond servant, his slave, must not be. Quarrelsome, argumentative, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient with wrong, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Titus 3, 1, "...remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient." To be ready for every good deed. To malign no one. To be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. There's a lot, aren't there? James 3.13 Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. Boy, that'll preach. The gentleness of wisdom. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy, good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. Proverbs 15, 1. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. It's clear, isn't it? I do agree that there are times for a stern response. We do know this. Jesus, cleansing the temple. John the Baptist, you brood of vipers. Right? However, where are all the commands in Scripture in the epistles? They're almost all calling us to what? Gentleness and respect and reverence. Reverence is synonymous with respect. Showing honor. Just as Paul did in Acts 17. What were these people in Acts 17? They were idol worshippers. They were idol worshippers. Now, what would be our response? You wicked idol worshippers! God's about to slay you! But he says, Being then the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, An image formed by the art and thought of man. Calling them the offspring of God? Hmm. If we treat people as the image bearers they are, then God will be glorified and some may become his adopted children. Beloved, this is the apologetics at its finest. Hypocrisy is one of the biggest arguments against Christianity, correct? Correct. But humble dependence upon the Lord that produces gentleness and meekness lived out in tribulations is one of the strongest arguments for Christianity. I'll tell you, I cannot imagine a person meeting Johnny Erickson Tata and saying there is no God. I don't. There's no way. You can't deny it. So first, we don't fear man. We must reverence Christ. We must be ready to share the gospel. We must share the gospel with a proper attitude, with gentleness and meekness and reverence. We must keep a good conscience despite the circumstances. Notice verse 16. and Keep a good conscience so that in the things in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Peter explains the believers who reverence Christ by being ready to give a defense, who do it with gentleness and reverence, also must maintain a good conscience through their circumstances. When we are mistreated, we must keep a clear conscience. In other words, make sure we respond as Christ responded. I had an interesting conversation with a a few of us this week over whether anger is okay. Okay. Is it all right for us to get angry? Well, the scriptures say, be angry and do not sin. It does not say, don't be angry, right? So can we get angry? Absolutely. I think the Bible allows for righteous anger. It does. However, it does say, be angry and do not sin. Which is almost like saying, be righteously angry, but keep a good conscience. It's almost the same thing, isn't it? Don't sin. So the answer is ultimately, keep a good conscience with dealing with people. I know, are there any parents in the room like me? That there's been a couple of times where you got angry and then you kind of snapped a little bit at your child. Angered not because of God's glory, but anger because they disrespected you. And you got defensive and you said what? You snap back at them. Let me ask you a question. Is it easy to... Is it, at that point, is it really easy for you to go ahead and do the discipline necessary? Oh, no. Doesn't it kill us? What happens in our brains? Our consciences are destroyed. Here I am. I'm going to discipline you for doing something, sinning, that I just did. Does our conscience kill us? Anybody in here killed by that? Me. That's why we have to be extremely careful... to check our hearts. And understand that we can elevate ourselves over our opponent in a split second. Can't we? Yes, I think we can get angry. But I think all too often... Our anger produces bitterness or frustration or fear or overwhelming grief or anxiety or hostility. The believer is called to keep a good conscience when their opponent mocks them or mistreats them or persecutes them. When we respond as the righteous one responded we will have no reason to feel shame or guilt. Make sure that you don't look back with a guilty conscience that you did not honor Christ as you should have. I think all too often we start out with right motives. Isn't this us, parents? Oh, we start out with right motives. We think, okay, I'm going in the right direction. And the, and the enemy and works through our loving children and picks, us, and picks us and picks us and picks us and picks us until finally we do what? We snap and then what? There went our testimony. Is it? Are you anybody else in here as convicted as me? As we go through these, again, I am definitely not the hero. It's funny getting a text from somebody in several states away, no problem. But having my teenager or my preteens come up to me and say anything, but respectful, yes, sirs can push every button I shouldn't have yes so he says they will be put to shame when we keep a good conscience wait a second do we want people to be put to shame do we want people to be put to shame well it depends on how you're thinking of that word shame If you're trying to make them look smaller than you, then you've missed the whole point. If You're trying to get them to see their need of Jesus. You're on the right track. That's what he means by this. See, when we're humble and when they treat us bad and we respond with grace and gentleness and they go, Wow being disrespectful I'm mistreating somebody that loves me that could be the beginning of God showing them his son through you oh I want that don't you how many of you want to see people come to the end of themselves and exalt Jesus Christ all of us right So next time you are brought to a position where you are confronted or persecuted, remember, this is your opportunity. (laughs) We don't do what we do to make others feel small. We do what we do to make others find Jesus and enjoy Him. Why do we do this? Well, because we understand that this is the purpose of God. We must remember our purpose. You see it in verse 16. For it is better if God should will it. God wills what? That we suffer for righteousness' sake. How about this one? Can you imagine? What is God's will for your life? You ready? To suffer for righteousness' sake. (laughs) That's His purpose for you. Oh, that will clean out a church, won't it? That's not that secret or sensitive message, everybody. What's God's will for me? To suffer for righteousness' sake. But this is God's will? Isn't it better that He should will it? That we should suffer for righteousness' sake instead of suffering for doing what is wrong? Getting a spanking for doing sin? That's not as good as suffering for doing what He wants us to do. So God, use me for that kind of suffering. Is that what you want? Is that what you want? That's what I want. I don't want to be used for doing evil, getting the spanking and suffering for that. How many? None of us want that, do we? I want Him to will for me to suffer for righteousness' sake. This is our purpose. And what in the world would we take joy in this for? How many of you want this? (laughs) Why? Why would I want this? Answer. Because Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. So that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Who's the unjust? Us! Who's the just? Him! Who did He die for? The just for the unjust! Why do we look at these verses and say, I'm not going to strike the ear of the high priest, servant, anymore. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to instead proclaim Christ and take beatings and rejoice. Why? Because we know Jesus died for me, the unjust. This is it. If we could get this one message, one message, and apply it to our lives. Our lives would be dramatically different. When Jesus when Peter saw Jesus die on a cross, rise from the dead, his life was changed. Is yours. Is yours. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for watching over us and walking with us. Father, all that we have is from you. You're the Father of lights who gives good gifts. Oh, Lord. This message for me, I know for the people, are, it's extremely convicting. By nature, we are all too often complainers. Oh God, please forgive us. Please, Father, help us to put our eyes on Christ, remind ourselves daily of what He's done for us, and that our hope is in heaven with You. Oh God, please give us opportunities now. We do want open doors to proclaim your name. Help us to remember this message when we are mistreated. Please, God, help us. We know it's only by your Spirit that we can produce this fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. We need you, Spirit, work in our lives. We want to exalt Christ. We want Him to be exalted in all that we do and say, please God, use us, please God, help us. Bring the refining fire into our lives. That our faith will be shown to be true. And that you will be exalted. For it is your glory that we are all about. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.